On a country road near Murren Bateman, we drove the ute to Clonakilla Wines, a sprawling vineyard owned and operated by Tim Kirk. It was founded by his dad, John Kirk, in 1950. Clonakilla Wines has become an award-winning, world-renowned label, which in my opinion, is very well-deserved. Tim and I sat down over a glass of their top shelf Shiraz Viognier to talk about Tim's growing up around wine, his own personal faith decision as a teenager, and how faith can be expressed in all areas of life, even in business. I'm Carl Fays, and this is my interview with Tim Kirk. So Tim, tell me how Clonakilla Wines got started. Well, Clonakilla was started by my dad. Dr. John Kirk, he's the founder, 50 years ago this year, actually, Carl. Well, so. 50 years is working well, because that's, that's fabulous. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, this is not just any clonakilla, this is the top of the tree. This is our Shiraz Viognier. So this is wow. the one that we're internationally famous for. So why did your dad start it 50 years ago? Well, dad had an interest in wine, which goes back to his childhood, actually. His parents owned a couple of hotels in Ireland and he was at boarding school as a kid in England, but he'd come home in the school holidays. And when he was a teenager, say 14, 15 years of age, he would be back to Ireland, back to the hotel, and to keep him out of mischief, I imagine, his parents would put him to work. And his job was to serve behind the bar and also to look after the drinks needs for the customers dining in the hotel restaurant. So, and as part of that job, he also had to deal with the traveling wine salesman who'd be coming through with, you know, trying to sell him this wine and that. He had to make some decisions about which wines to buy for his family business. And so not to look a fool, he thought he'd better find out something about it. So he started, even before he had any concept or taste for wine himself, yep. he would read books about the great wines of the world so he could make the right purchasing decisions. And yeah. that just became a fascination for him, like all the complexities and the subtleties and all the marvelous landscapes around the world where wine is produced, it just became his lifelong passion. Yeah. So he then went on to study biochemistry at Cambridge and he met my mum. They were both in the doctoral program in biochemistry at Cambridge. And of course, as part of university life, there's wine is a big part of that too. The, the tradition of the high table where the, the, the lecturers would be sitting and the doctoral students would be allowed to sit with them. And a lot of these university colleges have great cellars. So his love for wine just deepened and increased. In 1968, I think you could say he was headhunted by the CSIRO to come to Australia and work as a research scientist and he worked with the Division of Plant Industry who were based here in Canberra. And so settling here in 68, this lifelong love of wine, he looked at the climate here, he looked at the soil structure that we have around this region and he said to himself, well, why isn't there a wine industry here? Wow. And to his uh, eternal credit, he had the entrepreneurial gumption to say, well, I'm gonna have a crack myself. Wow. So in 1971, he purchased this block here, which was mm -hmm. a brand new, subdivision of a much larger fine wool growing property and he proceeded to plant vines. So very small beginnings, real bootstrap operation year after year we just built it slowly and slowly and then now it's become what it is which is a significant Australian winery. So Clonakilla, what does the, mean, the word mean? Clonakilla, it's actually named after my dad's family farm back in County Clare in Ireland which is a dairy farm and it means meadow of the church, wow. meadow of the church. Why, what about you? So why did you get into uh, the, the family business and yeah. winemaking? Well, that's an interesting story. I, I, in many ways, I grew up with it. So 
we established the vineyard in, the, in its initial phase, at least in 1971, when I was four. So really for all of my life that I can remember, wine has been part of our family culture. It was always there on the dining table at night. Dad would be having a glass or two of wine. And then interestingly to me as a young fella, he would be sipping the wine and then writing notes on it. And I didn't realize that that was an unusual thing. I just assumed everyone when they had a glass of wine would, would write notes on it. So paying attention to wine was part of my environment as I was growing up. Uh, I, I didn't have a taste for it myself until I was probably in my early 20s. In fact, it wasn't until I left home and I moved in with a bunch of other guys into a, into a group house that I realised that wine wasn't necessarily on the dining table every night and then it wasn't there. I, I kind of missed it. I missed the yep. culture of it. Yep. So I started to do a little bit of wine buying myself and then I, it, it became slowly but surely a, a fascination for me. But it's important to know, Carl, that in terms of um, my own education, I don't have any formal qualifications in wine. My, wow. my training's wow. in theology, actually. <laughs> wow. Yes, I'm trained particularly in New Testament um, theology, New Testament exegesis. So I did all the training that a pastor would do, actually. Yes. Um, but, and I was teaching in, in Melbourne. My wife and I, Lara and I, moved to Melbourne in 1990. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was to, with our Catholic lay community that I'm a, a long-standing member of because we wanted to start a, a branch of our community in Melbourne. And I got a job as a teacher at a Jesuit school, actually, and I was teaching religious education at Xavier College in Melbourne for, for five years. And as part of being a teacher, you always get some pretty good school holidays, always around that Easter period, yep. just when the wine is being made. So even though I was living in Melbourne, I was able to come up in the school holidays and work with my dad on the winemaking. And I suppose it would be true to say I just fell in love with it, you know, living yeah. here, working here, breathing this beautiful, crisp, cool climate, country air. I thought that's where I think I want to end up. Yeah. So at the end of 96, we left teaching, uh, we left Melbourne, and we had the first of our five kids with us, Madeline at that stage, she was only 18 months old, and we settled here on the farm in Murrumbateman and I became the full-time winemaker. What are the important parts of your faith journey as you grew up? Well, I was raised and still very happily uh, am a practicing Catholic. So faith, again, was always part of my family culture growing up. Though it was an ecumenical family because dad's Roman Catholic, but mum's an Anglican. Mum was an Anglican. So I, I grew up with an appreciation of the diversity and complexity between you know, different sort of tribes, I suppose, in the Christian world. Um, I would go to church every day, every week, I should say, every Saturday evening. We'd have a Saturday evening service growing up as a kid and with my dad and my brothers. And it was just part of the environment. Dad would teach us to pray. And I, one of my strongest memories is my dad kneeling down beside my bed with me at night, you know, with prayers for the evening, prayers for the family. And I also remember strongly when I was in church with dad, you know, that moment, I'm sure it happens in every church, after we, you know, we'd have a communion, and then after communion, uh, my dad, I had this image of him kneeling down, and he'd still be kneeling there in prayer when the priest would get up to read the notices at the end of the, the, end of the service. So that image of my dad being a man of prayer, mm -hmm. I think is very formative mm -hmm. for me. And I found that prayer in my early years came quite naturally to me too. I guess I was in touch, and I, and, I, and I do see this as somehow like a, a grace of God in my life. I was in touch from a fairly early stage with this kind of deeper question that would resonate in my heart about what 
is this all about? What is this all about? And I remember when I was a kid, when we, in the summer holidays, we have a little place down the coast, and I would love walking up and down the beaches at night. And when I walked up and down the beaches at night, I would be singing, mm. singing to God. And, and what I used to sing was the, actually the, the parts of the, the Catholic Eucharistic celebration, the Mass, the Holy, Holy, and the Gloria, and the Lamb of God. I mean, these things have been set to music by some of the greatest composers mm. over mm. the centuries, and some beautiful musical settings for these very special prayers. And I think it was an expression of this yearning inside of me to know more of the goodness and the presence and the love of this God who mm. I profess belief in. Mm. Um, when I was about 15, I joined a Catholic youth group in Canberra and there I met some young Catholics who were able to speak about their faith in such a powerful and personal way that when they spoke about Jesus, they did speak about someone they had a personal relationship with. Yep. And for me, this was another level again. I mean, I was a person of faith, but their intimacy, mm. the intimacy of their language when they spoke about Jesus in particular, was really quite striking and amazing. And I remember saying to some of these young people, well, how, how did you enter into this experience of relationship, personal relationship? Mm. And they said, basically, nothing could be simpler. It's simply a matter of opening your heart and inviting Jesus to come in. Yeah. So I remember going home that night and then numerous nights after that, I'd be lying in my bed and I'd be praying and I'd be saying, Lord Jesus, you know, I believed in you all my life. I really want to get to know you personally. Come into my heart. And I prayed that prayer every night for I'd say two or three months. And then at the end of that time, I, I remember going on a Catholic youth camp organized by this same group, this mm. youth ministry in Canberra, where to cut a very long story short, all I can say is that the Lord answered that prayer with such power and grace that I had an experience of the presence of the risen Jesus, which was so life-changing mm. and so powerful that it basically opened a door in, in my whole perception of God and reality of his presence and love that's never been closed since. Wow. Yeah. This might sound a little odd, but as a Catholic growing up, why not the priesthood given a heart for the kingdom, for Jesus and the church? That's a good question. It's a good question. And uh, uh, it was asked many times of me when I was a young mm. person because I was someone mm. who was so full of faith and love for God. Well, are you going to become a priest? But the answer was always no. I didn't feel that was my call. And in the Catholic way of thinking about these things, uh, uh, it is a very specific call mm. to serve as a priest. And there was also some very stringent disciplines attached to it. Obviously, celibacy is, yep. is the one that's well known. And I never felt that was my call. I always thought I was supposed to be a family man. I had a deep desire to be married and to have kids. And of course, Lara and I married in 1990. We got five kids. But the wonderful thing that we've come to understand, particularly since the Second Vatican Council in the 60s in the church, that serving the Lord and being in ministry is not something which is kind of the prerogative just of um, the, the priest, like mm. a small group of professional ministers. It's actually the call of every baptized person. Yeah. Yep. That if you've been baptized, if you're filled with the spirit of Jesus, then you're called to be an instrument of his presence yeah. to everyone and yeah. to the world. Whether you're in business or you know, you're a school teacher like I used to be, or you're in politics, or you are in fact in full-time ministry, 
the principle's the same, it's expressed in different ways. You have got into, you, you said earlier about going to Melbourne and starting uh, a part of the church you're involved with. So you've always had a, a leadership role within the church. Yeah, that, that would be true. And um, I'm, my wife and I have for a long time been members of a, a Catholic lay community. Uh, and I've been the leader of that community internationally. Now I'm the leader of a, the Canberra branch of our community, the Disciples of Jesus. So leadership and ministry, even as a lay person, is a, is a door that's definitely been opened for me. This podcast is brought to you by the Ministry of Olive Tree Media. Our vision is to create a library of resources that tell the story of the game-changing message of Jesus. This interview was recorded for our latest documentary, Faith Runs Deep. Our other award-winning series, Jesus the Game Changer and Towards Belief, plus many other small group, church and school series are available on our Watch Plus platform for a small monthly partnership. As you partner with us, you not only get access to compelling video content and interactive discussion guides, but you also support the creation of more resources that help share the gospel message. To become a partner and get access to Faith Runs Deep, visit olivetreemedia.com.au. Tell me about the production of wine. What, what is it that's, that's so attractive and alluring about that whole process? Well, you know, we can answer this a number of different ways. Wine is, at this level, I think, a thing of, of beauty and dignity. And in its deepest sense, it really is about capturing something which is hidden already in the landscape. The French have this beautiful word that they use, terroir, and it's a complex word. It means all of those elements, whether it's the soil, the slope of the hill, the rainfall patterns, the way the wind moves through a given site where those grapevines are planted, all of those natural uh, elements, those elements of creation, if you will, in a very particular site, find their expression in aroma and texture and flavor through the medium of wine, you see. Yeah. So for me, this is, and particularly coming from a theological perspective, I get to work hand in hand with creation. Like I'm about capturing something that's beautiful and dignified and true and wonderful that's here in the creation yep. around us. Yep. Capturing that through the means of grapevines and wine and putting it in a glass so people yeah. can smell it themselves, you know, wherever they are, anywhere in the world. They can pick up a glass, pour some Clonacilla Shiraz Viognier in it and get a sense straight away they're transported to this piece of landscape, wow. this piece of creation, yeah. and to hear what this piece of creation is wanting to say through the medium of wine. So it's, it's a very natural kind of um, respectful working hand in hand with God, with the yeah, creator yeah. in capturing something beautiful. There's a sculptor that says when he takes a block of marble, he's, it's like he's uncovering something that's there. He's, he's finding something that's already within the block of, of stone. In a funny sort of way, that, that wine is a bit like that, that un, unearthing, that uncovering something that's kind of there in the environment. And, and you're not just creating something different, but un, uncovering a part of the environment. That's a fantastic way of thinking about it, I think. Yeah, it's as if something is hidden in this environment something is something precious mm. you know, almost just below the surface you know that we just have to work to unearth yeah, yeah. and that's what we're doing exactly yeah. we're trying to find the treasure that's placed in all of those complex physical elements those created elements within this environment 
and see how that treasure gets captured and expressed through the medium of wine. Which is intriguing because most people would see wine as, as a business, and it is a business, I want to come back to that. But this is kind of saying there's, there's so much more to it, there's a creative edge to this. Creative, certainly, uh, in that we're working. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you the image that I sometimes use. When yep. I was a younger person, I, I used to love painting watercolours. Now, we think about painting watercolours, one of the things you have to do is you have to have a very light touch. You're trying to capture, I painted landscape, so you're trying to capture how the light intersects with a very particular landscape. You're trying to capture that through the medium of watercolour, paint and paper. In a way, as a winemaker, we're, tr we're trying to do exactly the same thing, but instead of using watercolour paints, we're using the medium of, of grapes and, and grapevines and wine to try and capture the essence of light intersecting with a very particular landscape. Uh, so that's, it's, yeah. yeah, definitely uncovering a treasure that's hidden. How do you deal with the fact that it is a business? There's sort of science, there's ag agriculture, there's marketing. The, how do you sort of balance that all up? Well, just to go back a step, I love that about this business. I mean, if you want to talk about a vertically integrated business, yeah. we grow grapes. Yeah. <laughs> we have to be good at viticulture. We pick grapes. We make wine. We have to be good at making wine. You know, then we store the wine at the right time. We'll blend it and we'll bottle it and then we'll label it. So we have to be good at imaging and presentation. And then we market it. So we have to be good at communication. And then, of course, we have to do all the other things that every business has to do, which is all the accounting and everything else. The whole process is done right here. So yeah. it's totally up and down, vertically integrated. But it is a business. There's no question about it. It has to, uh, you know, we have to make a profit, otherwise we won't be able to continue. But it, it's a business which is built on creating and crafting something beautiful out of the landscape. So we are in the business of capturing beauty, the business of capturing beauty. That's not a bad sort of business to be yeah. in. Is there any tension between the kind of creative part of the winemaking business and the business end? Does, do, do they have a clash? I don't see a clash, Carl. I don't see a clash. I think the thing about this business is the better you get at doing this thing that we've been talking about, capturing beauty in this natural environment, the more you can use all those creative elements to try and bring out what's wonderful in the grapes, um, the better your business is going to be because that's what people want out of wine. They want complexity and elegance and sophistication and beauty and that sort of, I suppose you could say that wow moment. Yeah. You know? That's for wine lovers, that's the key point. You smell something and you go, wow, that is, that is something. Yeah. So the better I get at producing something that produces the wow moment, the stronger the business is going to be. People yeah. want to buy into that. That's exactly what wine lovers want. Yeah. What about your, your own faith? Clearly, deeply important part of your life. How does that interact with what you do here? Well, my, my faith interacts with every element of my life. You know, um, my church involvement, clearly, uh, the way I raise my kids, the way we try and do our marriage, it informs everything. You know, God is present to everything that we do. He doesn't somehow look away when we engage in business. I mean, this is totally part of his good creation, his good plan for us, if you will. The thing is that we have to conduct our business um, well in, in the light of his love. So, of course, we want to treat everyone with absolute respect. We have to look for and honour the dignity of every person, whether that's the staff who work with us, whether it's the customers who come through our cellar door, whether it's a, you know, a, a retailer or a restaurateur that we're dealing with. Like we need to be sure that we are positive, respectful, honouring and honest in all that we do. So 
I guess that's how we try and run things and it, it's, it seems to be working well. <laughs> good, good on you. Uh, back in the end of the 19th century, a big movement within Australia's nation was the temperance movement. Um, how, as a Christian winemaker, how do you see that your interaction with the temperance movement? That's a great question. The temperance movement was launched in a situation of people becoming aware of the destructive capacity of alcohol. Mm. That'd be fair to say? Yeah. That alcohol, if it's abused, used wrongly, used disrespectfully, uh, can do terrible damage mm. to people. There's no question about that. We, we've seen plenty of evidence in our own lives and certainly in the late 18th century, both you know, in the UK, in the US and in, here in Australia, um, lots of evidence of the destructive power of alcohol when it's misused. And, and I totally respect that. I mean, I am a, a professional alcohol producer. That seems like a strange thing for a devout Christian to say, but that's yep. what I do. I produce alcohol and nothing saddens me more than to see what I value, the beauty and the dignity of that product, abused. So um, I totally get the temperance movement as a reaction to something that was very destructive in society. On the other side of the ledger, I suppose, you know, wine has forever, as far back as we can remember at least, if not quite forever, been part of human societies. There's no question that right through the biblical tradition, wine was part of the culture. It was part of the table culture of um, first century Judaism. Jesus drank wine regularly. The wonderful text in John chapter 2 about Jesus turning water into wine. He didn't turn water into grape juice. He turned water into wine to honour a young couple at the instigation of his beautiful mother Mary to look after that young couple who were at risk of being severely embarrassed. So clearly, you know, wine, when it is respected, when it's put in its right context of family and friendship and celebration and life and the, the table culture of a civilised society, it just, it has a place. Mm. It has a place. So there's two poles, I suppose. We've yeah, got to find yeah, a balance yeah, between yeah, the two. Yeah. Music is also part of your life. What do you do with music? Oh, I love music. I've, I've played guitar forever. And uh, in fact, my family, my, both my, my dad's family, like uh, full of Irish musicians, fiddlers and banjo players and guitar players. In fact, my dad's cousin, Sean O'Reida, and we actually named a wine after him, is quite celebrated in Ireland as one of the great influences in the, in the 20th century to celebrate you know, deep heart Irish music. Um, for me, music has always been part of my life and, and, I, and I play a lot of music in church. I, I lead music ministries, lead worship. Um, I love singing every time. I, have prayer time in the morning, I'm always just singing worship to the Lord. I mean, it's, it's how we express mm, what's, mm. what is placed in yeah. our heart, right? So yeah, I love it. I write music, I play music, uh, lead worship. It's just a big part of who I am. Wow. Tim, this series is called Faith Runs Deep. How do you see faith running deep through our culture? Well, I, you know, I think some of the things that this series is highlighting is that you have people right through the history of this country, certainly people right through Australian culture at the moment, who are people of deep faith, who coming out of that wellspring, if you will, of what the Spirit is doing, what the Spirit's given them and released within them, are wanting to do good in the world. Mm -hmm. That's the consequence of meeting Jesus, is that you want to do what He did. You want to be His instrument, if you will, 
for, for good in the world. Now, again, that could be in business, it could be in politics, you could be in law, you could be a teacher, you could be an educator, you could be a filmmaker, you know, but you've got that desire to pass on what you've been given, which is this overwhelming sense of goodness and love flowing from the heart of God revealed through Jesus Christ. So I think Christians definitely, through the history of this country and definitely into the present time, uh, need to hear that call and are hearing that call to respond and be that instrument of God's love. So that's what it's all about. Thank you for joining me on this podcast as I unearth stories of faith in Australia. To watch the full Faith Runs Deep series and all Olive Tree Media content, go to olivetreemedia.com.au and sign up to the Watch Plus platform and partner with us today.